Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. Just one quick announcement. Uh, this is not on Frank. This is on me. Uh, there is no Lord's Supper next Sunday. It's the beginning of uh, fall break and many people will be out and the uh, Lord's Supper committee asked if they could change it to another Sunday. So we'll uh, it's been postponed. We'll let you know this uh, in the coming days via email when the Lord's Supper will be. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into God's holy word and what God has for us this morning. Let us pray together. God, I pray that in the stillness of this moment, that we would experience your presence with us. We are desperate for your presence, God. It's only by your presence that there ever comes transformation, and we desperately need transformation in our lives, each of us in this building this morning. I pray that each of us would leave different, more with you than what we came with. That cannot happen in and of ourselves, that can only happen because of the washing of your word over our hearts and our minds and our souls. I pray that would be true for us this morning. I offer this text to you, I offer this time to you that you would be glorified, that you would have your way in this place and we'd submit our lives under your mighty word. Your word is true always. Yet as we'll see in this passage, it's the plan of the great deceiver to manipulate, to distort, and to confuse us even with your word. So I pray that that would not happen this moment and this morning and the days and years to come. We'd be confident of who you are and who you say you are and what you call us to do. So lead us this morning, guide us as we look here again at Genesis chapter 3. The moment that all of creation was broken because of one decision. God, that's true for all of our lives. That we come because of Adam and Eve and the fall. We come as broken people. And we need your great healing. We need your great restoration. God, some of us in this room need your great salvation, your justification. I pray that would happen. A miracle would happen in the hearts of people who are far from you. That they would be drawn to you by your Spirit. And for us in the room this morning, God, that know you and trust you as our Lord and Savior, I pray for sanctification. That you would mold and bend our hearts to become more like Christ. So we offer you ourselves this time to you. Have your way in this place. Amen. We're going to continue our series here in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this is a critical moment in uh, the Bible. Everything from this moment on in the Bible is going to be altered. It's going to be changed. The first two chapters is perfection. And if you read all the way through to Revelation, the last chapter of the book again is perfection but there's tragedy in most of the bible like most of the bible is full of tragedy because of this moment for us and i'm going to get to the end of the message and i'm going to show us that just because there's tragedy there is great hope for us but i must start with the tragedy this is where many theologians you'll hear the the idea of original sin all of us because of this moment in history, all of us come into this world fallen, broken, sinful people. 
The moment that Tennyson was born, she was a fallen, broken, sinful person. There was no good in her outside of the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God. But if her heart and her soul were desperately wicked, it's because of this moment. And so we must all come to that agreement. There's no good in any of us because of Adam and Eve's choice in the garden. So this morning, I want to look at the fall. I want to look at several things. I want to look at the the tempter. I want to look at what happened to Eve when she was tempted. I want to look at the core of the temptation because it's still true for us. And then finally, I want to look at the fall and the consequences of the fall. So first, let's talk about the tempter. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the tempter is not the snake. It's important to know. The tempter is not the snake because we know in Genesis chapter 2 that God had made all things and in all things He actually made snakes. Though I hate them, maybe you hate them, He actually made a snake and in making the snake, He said the snake was good. So the snake is not the problem. The problem is what's within the snake, the great deceiver. Now I don't know how it happened, but Satan overtook the serpent in that moment. And so Satan used the serpent as a tool to get to Adam and Eve to deceive them. We know it's the serpent that was used by Satan because throughout the Bible you'll see uh, that is what we see over and over. There's several names for the tempter, for Satan. He's known in Revelation 12.9 as the devil. He's also known as the deceiver. Jesus says he's the father of lies. And on and on we go. So the snake is not the issue. The tempter, Satan, is our enemy, not the snake. Now we could just pause there and say we have a problem, which we do have a problem, but there's this little nugget at the end of the first verse. Of the first sentence, excuse me. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. But catch what it says, that who had made? The Lord God had made. So Moses, out of the gates, is still showing us that God is still sovereign in control of all things. He has no equal. Satan is not equal to God. Satan is still under the control of God because even God made Satan. We know that in Isaiah. That in the moment that Satan wanted to become all-powerful like God, well, God had made that angel, Lucifer. So God does not have an equal. You do not have a good angel on this side and a bad angel on this side. God is sovereign over all things. That includes Satan himself. But why do we give him so much power? Because I think we've been deceived by his power. We've been deceived with what we'll see in this text. The same way Adam and Eve is deceived by his power, we are deceived by his power. And then the tempter asks a question. Andrew, do not try to follow along with the slides, my friend. You will confuse yourself and you'll confuse everyone else. So just a heads up on that. Okay. I'm looking down, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm already off the slide. So uh, that ain't good. When you come out five minutes in, you're already off. So, but that's all right, right? So the great 
tempter always tempts us with great questions. He says this. He, the serpent, he, Satan, said this to the woman. Did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the first question that's ever found in the book of the Bible. The first question is Satan arriving on the scene and he asks a question to God's creation. Now, I want you to circle the word God in the text. Remember, we had talked about this two weeks ago. Remember that we have talked about God and we've talked about the Lord God and now look where Satan brings us back to. He brings us back to the name of God that means Creator. But he does not bring us back to Yahweh, the God of all things. Yahweh means the God of relationship, the covenantal God. But in the great deceiver, he's trying to move mankind away from the relational aspect of God back to just God being sovereign and reigning over all things. No relationship. So the great deceiver is always going to deceive us that God is not a God of relationship, but that God is a God of rule and rule only. Now we have a relational God that is desperate to have relationship with His people. And Satan knows. He's so cunning, baffling, and powerful. Satan knows if he can move us away from the relationship with God, then all of our power from God will be distorted. And so right out the bat, he says, did God really say that you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? Now look what God does, our Satan does in his question. Now he gets the question, the statement right. There's just one little word in the statement that's off. God did not say you cannot eat of any tree. One word of God's word changes the course of history, right? Because if you go back up to Genesis chapter 2, what did God actually say to Adam and Eve? You can eat of any tree in the garden except one tree. Satan says you can't eat of any tree. So Satan's always going to use God's word and distort it. Like Satan is so cunning, baffling, and, and crafty that he knows, hey, I've got to know enough of the word of God so that they know enough of the word of God, but I'm going to twist it just a little bit to bring confusion. I'm going to get to that at the end as a way of application, but remember that Satan will always use God's word against him. Here's what's scary about it. Satan knows God's word more than we do. And so he's not going to blatantly lie to us, but he will use the word of God to bring questions to our mind. And that's what happens with Eve in this moment. In the questioning of God's word, Eve gets confused. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman spoke to the serpent. This is just a sidebar. Anyone ever thought, like, how come Eve ain't freaking out because there is a snake talking to her? Like, like what? Like, was that like a common thing in the garden? Like, animals just talking out loud? Like, no, this snake shows up and starts talking to Eve. And 
Eve in her brilliance decides to have a conversation back with the snake. Now, I don't know about you, but if a snake starts talking to me, I'm running. But she's like, oh, man. I don't know if she was lonely with, you know, maybe it shows at the very beginning how lonely men are with, women are with men because men don't like to talk. So she's going to start talking to a snake. I, I don't know. But she starts having a conversation with a snake. The truth is this. She re- moment, in that moment, remembered all that God had given her was good. Why would she not have a conversation with something that was good from God? She's already tricked. Because she's already away from what God really said. If she had a listened to the serpent, she would have known that he was already a liar. And that's when she ought to have run, but she got confused. Would she get confused about three things? And I believe this is true for us today. The three P's of confusion in this text are this. Look at what she says to the serpent. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said we shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. Three things we see. The first thing she gets confused about is the provision of God. How often is that true for us? That Satan lies to us and confuses us about all that God has provided for us. She gets so confused about what God had really said about all the trees and all the fruit, all of it was hers. And I wonder for us, church, and I know this is true for us, we get confused about the provision of God. Do you want to know why affairs are so rampant, even in the church? We've forgotten the provision of God. The wife or husband that is sitting next to you, that is a gift from God. And yet we think to ourselves, and I'm going to get here in a moment, oh, God must be withholding from me. Like, Oh, God must not want me to have everything, so He's holding back things, so i got to go muster up and get things on my own. No, no, God always provides exactly what we need and when we need it. Amen? But we get confused. And we take things into our own hands. And we'll see. She took things in her own hands. And life got chaotic. Not only that, she got confused with what God had prohibited. Go back to the text. She says this. We shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it. That's not what God said. God never told her not to touch the tree. God said simply, don't eat of the tree. And so now all of a sudden, now God is going to withhold His provision, but now we get confused about what God allows and doesn't allow. You know, there's so much freedom in Christ, and yet we still live like slaves. 
because we don't believe in the promises of God that God provides all things. And yet in his provision, he does inhabit us some things. But in his inhabitants of those things, holding back of those things, that is even for our good. Like it's not that God is withholding to play tricks on us. God is withholding from us things he knows that will harm us. And yet we get into our minds, oh no, no, God wants to withhold because he wants to punish us. No, God is trying to withhold things for us so that we'll do exactly what Jesus said in John 10, 10, live life to the full. Like, for instance, sex is a great thing. But it's only meant for the confines of marriage. Marriage is a great thing, but it's only meant for a man and a wife and a woman. And on and on and on I can go. So then we think, oh God, and what he's provided isn't enough. And so his provision is enough. And so then we look at what he's taking away from us as withholding from us. Rather than see it, no, no, God has a perfect plan for our lives and wants us to live our life to the full. The, the Ten Commandments are not a way to restrict us. The Ten Commandments are given to us, the Word of God, for us to live a full and abundant life. And so I would submit to you today, if you're not living a full and abundant life, it's because you do not believe in the provision of God, nor do you believe in God withholding things for you to have an abundant life. The last one is probably the scariest one of all of them. She got confused with the penalty of God. She says it this way. She softens the blow. We may not eat of it in the midst of the garden. Neither shall we touch it, lest you die. Go back up to verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, you shall not eat in the tree. Uh, you shall not eat for in that day of it, that you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. Eve said, no, at least we die. God said, no, you will surely die. This is going to happen. Eve is saying, well, this might happen. Surely and least are not the same word, are they? So she softens the blow of the penalty of God because she's confused because this serpent has said, hey, God is trying to do some things and trying to withhold some things. And she gets super confused. And then the serpent pipes back up. And he pipes back up and uses two things. This is the great temptation for all of us. Two great temptations is this. But the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. You know, that's partly true. Like that's, There's some truth in that statement. Like Satan knew that she ate of the tree. She wasn't going to fall over dead. So he's going to use the Word of God and give partial truths that look like the whole truth. And so what he's saying automatically, the great temptation is this, the character of God. That's our greatest temptation, is the character of God. Like, ah, oh, no, no, God doesn't really mean that. Like, God, that's not really what God is saying to you. Either. 
you won't really die. She buys it hook, line, and sinker. You, you won't really die. That, that's not what he means. This is what he really means. Now he's going to give a commentary on what God means. Anytime you uh, hear a commentary on the Word of God that isn't the Word of God, know it's coming from a forked tongue. Because then what he says next is not a commentary on the Word of God. It's his own commentary. And he says this. Surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Is that not another true statement? Go back, go fast forward to verse 7. It says their eyes were what? Open. But here's what else is true and all. And you will be what? Like God. Knowing good from evil. Now what's true about that statement and what's false about that statement is this. Their eyes would be open. They would know good from evil. But they would not be like what? God. Sounds good on the, the surface. Like that, that sounds like a good commentary. Except for that one little word. Like God. So he's saying, hey, I'm going to attack the character of God because God has already told us I'm supreme over all things. I have no equal. He told us that in chapter 1 and 2. And now all of a sudden, Satan's going to say, you can be like the sovereign God, knowing good from evil. So he's attacking the character of God. He's saying that God is not really who he says he is. That's scary. And that's what we believe when the tempter comes. Here's what else. He's says this. So he's attacking the Word of God. That's not really who God is. The second thing is the scariest. He attacks the goodness of God. So we believe that God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And that's what He says to the woman. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Hey, God's trying to withhold something from you. Like, like God doesn't want you to be like Him. Like God doesn't really care about you because He's not giving you everything. Isn't that how often kids treat us as parents when we don't give them exactly what we want, when they want it, how they want it? Like we become the bad guy? It's like, man. But we withhold things from our children because we as parents knows what's good for them and what's harmful to them. And so God knows if he, they become like Him, that's going to be very harmful for them. God knows if they see good and evil, that's harmful to them. Here's what happens with Satan. He doesn't play the tape all the way to the end. Like, yes, you'll have your eyes open. Yes, you'll know good from evil. No, you won't become like God. And yes, you will surely die. He doesn't tell him that part in this passage, does he? Like he didn't play the tape all the way to the credits. Like, hey, there's going to be something happen. When you take this fruit and you eat it, your eyes do get open. But what you're about to see when your eyes get open is terrifying. Now, do you think you're going to eat that fruit if someone says, hey, when your eyes get open, you're going to see things you never saw before and it's going to terrify you? You think she would have ate the fruit? No. So Satan is withholding all the information. 
That is how Satan dupes us. He gives us enough of the information, but withholds the ending of the story. And we believe it. Like the end of the story of an affair is everything around you, your life is going to fall to pieces. Your kids are not going to like you. Your kids aren't even going to want to be with you. Your wife is going to hate you. On on and on we go. Hey, you play the tapes all the way to having too much to drink where that ends. You end up in a car wreck killing someone in prison because of manslaughter. We, we don't get to that part of the story. Satan doesn't allow us to see that part of the story. But the place he shows us is, man, man, that is fun. The old, older gentleman that used to come here, he said he never saw ugly sin. It's always beautiful until the end when everything around you is broken and shattered to pieces. So the great temptation Satan will always use the Word of God. And he'll always, always attack the character of God. My great prayer for us is two things. We do not know the Word of God. If you do not know the Word of God, there's no way for you to know the true character of God. Because God's Word is full of His character. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. He's a just God. He's a wrathful God. And on and on and on I could go about the character of God. Satan is going to blind us to the Word of God and therefore blind us to the character of God. And Eve jumps all over it. Turn with me to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. Turn just for a moment to 1 John chapter 2. This is what the Apostle John says it looks like. He's getting it all the way back from this story. He says this in John, 1 John, that's page 1021 in the Pew Bible. This is the deep plea that the Apostle John is giving to the church, the people of God. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the desires of the flesh. She had fleshly desires. Man, that, that looks good. That's going to taste good. That's a fleshly desire. The desires of the flesh. The desires of the eye. The look of it. The taste of it. And then it says this. And the pride of life. So Satan's going to attack us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the promises of God says this. I'll give you everything you desire. I'll give you everything that you need. And I'll give you all of your life. And what does Satan do? He attacks those three things over and over and over again. But she took it. 
appreciated. She also gave some to her husband. Who's with her? Thanks a lot, Adam. Like, Adam, slap her hand. Do something, bro. Wake up. Like Adam was sitting right there Why the serpent is talking to his wife. Now, fellas, if a deceiver is talking to your wife, intervene. Like, oh, so all that Adam had to do is intervene. It says this in Romans. Eve is not the problem. Like, sin did not enter the world because Eve took the fruit. It says it this way. As sin, as death entered through what? One who? Man. It's not Eve's fault. Let's stop blaming Eve, fellas. It's our fault. As sin entered the world through one man. I think Paul knew the difference between a man and a woman. He used the word man on purpose. Because see, Eve was deceived and Adam sat idly by and watched it happen. Just watched it happen. All that Adam had to do after she ate the fruit was to bring righteous rebuke to her. And the course of history would have been different. But what does he do? He took it and ate it himself. Like you got to remember this. Like they had a perfect marriage. Like they, they had never fought before. Like it's not like they were having marital discourse already within a few hours of them being married. Like it was bliss. It says it in the text. They were naked and unashamed. They, they were fully exposed to each other. They had perfect harmony. And Adam, three sheets to the wind. What well, I man? I don't know. And man has been passive ever since. Now I could go off on that one line. She took it and ate it. And what happens when she eats it? Remember in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, And the man and his woman and his wife were both naked and what? Unashamed. They had perfect harmony, perfect oneness. They were whole with each other. And then they took it and something happened. called sin entered the picture and the consequence of sin is always this your eyes will be open and they knew that they were naked in that moment there was separation between the man and the woman and between god we'll see that next week that now they run from god the consequences of sin is this you will always have separation from yourself from god and other people there's always isolation and sin. And what happens in isolation? It's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5. We have an adversary that roars around like a devouring lion waiting for someone to devour, someone to kill. Watch National Geographic. Watch, the, watch uh, planet Earth. When you see a lion, the lion goes after the one that's in isolation. Sin always causes isolation from a community. And when sin causes isolation, death is always going to happen. 
That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They surely died that day. Their souls died in that moment. Because for the first time, they were separated from a holy God. Think about this for a moment. Thank God that's not where the story ends. Think about this. That the great tempter said, hey, take and eat. Take and eat and you'll have life. And there's two times in the Bible it says take and eat. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Only two times in the whole Bible. It says take and eat. One is by the great serpent. The other is by our Lord Jesus. And then Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And then he said what? Take and eat. You see, the first two words, take and eat from the serpent, were meant to give death. And I don't think it's by accident that when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before he's going to be betrayed, redeems what Satan has spoken into man 4,000 years before. And he used the same exact words that the great deceiver used that faithful day in the garden. Take and eat. And now he himself, our Lord Jesus, says this about himself. Take and eat me that you may have life because you took and ate of the fruit that gave death. But I promise you, take and eat of me. You have life and life to the full. And my question to me what I was studying What do I take and eat of every day? From the deceiver or from the life giver? Because Jesus said, I, when you take and eat of this, this is my body which was broken for you. My blood poured out for you. There's a new covenant, a new promise that trumps the old one. The old promise is if you take and eat, you will die. But if the new promise is if you take and eat of my life, you will live life to the full, you will have an abundant life. It's by no mistake that Jesus, on the night that He was to be betrayed, said, take and eat. And the question today for you and for me is, what are you taking and what are you eating? Because you are taking and you are eating. It's not a matter of which, of if you are. The matter is, you have two options in front of you. And Jesus is crying out, take and eat of me that you may have life and life to the full. He redeems and conquers what Satan had tried to do some 4,000 years before. So today, Paul's Chapel, let us take and eat of what he calls himself, I am the bread of life. We have life and life to the full that is found in Christ Jesus. That is the promise that our Lord gives to us. You see, the story does not end with us being naked and ashamed. The story ends with us being clothed in His righteousness with no shame. Let us pray.